Good morning. I am Brandon. I'm on your elder team here. And let me just say, on behalf of the elders, we love you guys. Uh, we love serving you guys. Um, so it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. We're continuing to work through our Summer with the Psalms series. Summer with the Psalms. And we've been leveraging this theme, Words That Know Me. Words That Know Me. And if you're just joining us at this point in the summer, we've been looking at several different psalms, and we're using psalms as kind of like a mirror. What I look like with God and what I look like without God. And the psalmist says in 139, you have searched me and you know me. And the Christian faith proclaims a God who knows our intimate thoughts and actions and speaks into those places. And so we look this morning at Psalm 62. David, who is the second king of Israel, he pens this song himself in many ways to address and confront what seems to be a crisis of control and a crisis of power in his leadership. A situation that, honestly, we all confront at times. Why does it seem the world is against me? How should I react when I am falsely accused? And scholars, they're not entirely sure when David, I know I'm going to trip over this, when David um, wrote this, but it's believed it was written potentially when Absalom was trying to usurp his throne. It was a place of betrayal, and, and, and the song itself is written around this place of adversity. And so, regardless of the exact historical context under which David's writing it, he's in a place of duress. He finds himself in a place many of us can relate to, a place that feels like life is just spinning out of control around him. And he's struggling to make sense of justice in this conspiracy that's happened. And the question that David asks and answers is the same question we face in times of opposition. What am I securing myself to as my ultimate source of identity? And can that be trusted in difficult times? When I am squeezed in a time of trial, what comes out of me? I want you to see what comes out of David. Psalm 62 in that spirit will be instructive and it will be comforting. Let's uh, pray together first and then we'll read it. God, you are our refuge and our strength. You know us better than we know ourselves. May the words of this song connect us this morning in new and profound ways with you strengthening our resolve and our trust in your goodness. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so follow along with me. We're going to go through Psalm 60, Psalm 60, Psalms 62, and we're going to read it all the way through, and then we're going to break it up into three parts. So if you have your Bibles this morning, follow along. It says this, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. 
I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they've done. In order to bring peace and in order to bring security to his soul, David has to answer, and so do we, this basic question, who can be trusted? And so I want to use this passage to answer three questions that arise from this psalm. First, how do I deal with the anxiety that arises from control being taken away? How do I deal with that? How do I respond? The next question he asks and addresses, how do I respond to false claims or attacks on my character and, and matters of injustice? And then the third point David contends with is, what is power ultimately and how do I use it? What is power and how do I use it? So first question, how do I keep from control-based anxiety? Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. He is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And the questions we ask ourselves, what brings anxiety into our lives? What brings anxiety? What conditions make you feel out of control? We hinted a little bit at what's going on in David's life, but in our own, is it being out of work? Is it out of money? Is it the fear of being alone? Is it child rearing? News and media, environmental worries, political losses or racial injustice. David is experiencing some of these same anxieties and he confronts his fears with three reminders. He needs to be anchored in stillness he needs to be anchored in rescue, and that in turn will bring him security. So let's talk about rest. My soul finds rest. David secured himself in the thought of God's love and faithful to him, faithfulness to him. And how would, this, how would this provide him rest? David understood, and we should too, that security in life is not based on luck, and it's not based on hard work. It's based on God's gracious love. His love. David would say... In Psalms 56, when being attacked by a Philistine army, he pens these beautiful words. He says, record my misery, list my tears on your scroll. Are they not in your record? David basically saying, God knows me so intimately, he knows every tear coming down my face. He loves me. He keeps track of those. When our soul is at rest. It means we can contain the desire to lash out. It means we can entrust the situation with God. And here's why, because if I'm acting and I'm doing and I'm walking according to what is consistent with God's word and his character, then God will be glorified regardless of the outcomes. God isn't swayed by arguments of what other people think about you and me. God isn't conditioned by social media 
or the gossip of the world. He sees the individual heart of each person, and this should bring us rest. This keeps David and should keep us from trying to control everybody else in our circles. We can't control them, but what we can do is we can control what God asks of us to do, and we can honor God in those situations, and then let that work its way outward. Let God be in control. He finds rest there. But then he goes on, he says, rescue. He needs rescue, another word for salvation. Salvation belongs to God. David has found himself, as if any of you open up to uh, 2 Samuel and you read through the life of David, you'll see his life was difficult in many ways. He found himself waiting for rescue moment after moment and hiding from his predecessor, King Saul, and dealing with the attacks of warring nations. He was constantly waiting for God's rescue. And he could confidently say, my salvation comes from him. And there's this beautiful theme in scripture that our faith is strengthened in times of waiting, not in times of instant gratification. When we walk through periods of uncertainty with resolve that God is in control, we emerge on the other side and we're encouraged. And uh, Bob Rasmussen a few weeks ago in Psalm 40 gave a beautiful testimony of that, of the challenges he and his wife walked through, but the outcomes and the strengthening of their faith on the other side. And if you didn't see it, I encourage you to go listen to it. But the truth of our joy is found in contemplation. It's found in faith and hope. And we often live our lives kind of between these ebbs and flows of joy and sorrow, but God uses those seasons of sorrow many times to build into us trust in his promises. We are to rest and we're to trust our rescuer and that says David arrives at security. He finds this security. He uses the term rock and fortress. In Psalm 135, uh, Psalm 130, verse 5, David says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. And so the temptation often when we're pushed is to retaliate, to act in retribution. But the Bible is not a book teaching retribution. Often people, when they push back on the Bible, they think that's exactly what it is. It's not. The Bible is a book of hope, a book of redemption, a book of trust. David's rule, while very imperfect, was marked in waiting on God and chasing after God's heart. And the Christian is to strive for equity, for peace, and unity, recognizing those things will always be perfectly fulfilled in God's work through our obedience, not in our abilities to manipulate power. We're going to talk more about that later. But David would reflect the sentiments of one of his priests, Asaph, when Asaph said in Psalm 73, Who am I in heaven? Who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. David trusted that as long as he was in this broken world, he would side with God and he would trust God. It was worth the hardship now to have the security with God for eternity. Rest, rescue, security. How do we keep from anxiety? How do we keep from the desire to be in control of our outcomes? One, we rest by the assurance that when we make decisions to honor God, he'll take care of the outcomes. Two, we recognize patience and waiting strengthen us. And three, we trust that our salvation is secure 
because of the object of our hope, not in our circumstances. But then he goes on to verses 3 through 9. Our next question, how do I respond to false claims or attacks on my character and matters of injustice? He says, how long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down? This leaning wall, this tottering fence, surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. The ASV actually says they consult to thrust him down from his dignity. They want to remove his dignity. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. So David says, first and foremost, we have to understand the method of attack that the world uses to come up against our dignity. If, in fact, Psalm 62 was written with the backdrop of Absalom trying to to usurp David, trying to take over his rule, it's kind of helpful to actually go back and look at what Absalom was doing and see if we can kind of connect that to what goes on in our culture. So if you'll turn or if you want to look over uh, and follow along with me in 2 Samuel, just a few verses here. This is Absalom's conspiracy. This is what he was doing. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. So he kind of dresses himself up, looks mighty and powerful. He would get up early. He would stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. When any, whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, Hey, what town are you from? And the person would answer, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And then Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who, was, who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that he gets justice. So he dresses himself up. He looks knowledgeable. He goes to the places where people are at and where he can be influential. He creates this perfect amount of uncertainty and distrust in the current leadership who, by the way, was instilled by God. This was God's man. And he proposes a solution to a flaw that may or may not have existed. doesn't say this was a problem, but he creates a problem, right? And apparently this was working, and it was wearing David down. David says, I'm this leaning wall, this tottering fence, like he's getting tired. He's getting tired of this. He's being toppled. And so the method we see here is a method we see still played out in our world today, don't we? Is this not the practices in politics? Do we not see people enter into the social space and social media and do very similar things? We see this all over. People bless with the mouth, but they curse with their intentions. And the lesson here for us is how much do we see of ourselves in David and frankly, how much do we see ourselves in Absalom? Are you being manipulated or are you manipulating using any of these tactics? The plans of man are to distort dignity and manipulate with lies. But where does David go? Does he fight fire with fire? Does he retaliate with words to to destroy? No, David repeats. He goes back because it's a song. He repeats the first refrain, but he adds this line. He says, my salvation and my honor depend on God. He's my rock. He's my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. He's getting ready to tip over. He's tired. What does he do for strength? He goes to the refuge. 
Go to the refuge. David's saying, if our human dignity is at stake, if I'm feeling vulnerable from the voices in my head, if I'm sinking in a pit of despair, if accusations are pushing me and I'm feeling like I'm falling over from these hurtful words, David says, go to the rock. And he uses this reminder, trust in him at all times, you people. Trust God rather than yourself and what other people are saying about you. The prophet Isaiah in, verse, uh, two, chapter, in chapter two, verse 22 says, stop trusting in mere humans who are but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Now understand, David, he didn't just sit in a corner and become a victim. Rather, David renewed first the strength of his mind and character, not by playing these games of power, but by girding himself in the trust of who God said he is. Teacher, author, Nancy DeMoss Wolgamoth, she states, when we fail to deal with hurt God's way, and work its way into our systems, and listen to this part, because I know we all relate to people that do this, ultimately we start to view everything through the eyes of hurt. Everything others do, everything that happens to us. Do you know people like that? Cynical, distrustful, skeptical about even the most basic motivations of other people. Why? Because they haven't anchored themselves in the truth of what God says about them as image bearers of himself. Strengthen your mind in who you are in God. If you're being manipulated, one, seek God in prayer. Pour out your hearts. Two, trust in God. Trust in him means you know his word, and it means you don't listen to the voices in your head. You listen to what God says about who you are. Third, put a plan together. Confront well. The Bible gives clear instructions to take someone with you if needed, to state the issue with facts, but do not put people around you that just enforce pre-existing um, ideas. This isn't about tribalization. This is about confronting well and confronting for truth. And if you're acting like Absalom, trying to manipulate other people, creating distrust, stirring up dissension, you need to stop and analyze your motivations. But what if, what if we place our trust in God, we confront well and the circumstances don't get better? Let's look where David goes next. He says, surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they're nothing together, they're only a breath. Very similar to what the prophet Isaiah said. I propose there's two ways, two ongoing ways to deal with unjust or unfair, unfair accusations. First off, David, again, if any of you have read most, a lot of his Psalms, he's remembering, he always spends time remembering in order to gain perspective, and he fights forgetfulness, fights forgetfulness when dealing with present difficulty, meaning it's easy to forget God's faithfulness to us when we're in hard times. Psalm 118, Psalm 136 are great examples, but in this passage, David reminds himself that self-important people are fleeting. David, in his rise to king, would go with smaller armies against greater armies, and he would defeat them. David had defeated Goliath. How? Because David knew, that, knew when God goes with him that God would do the work. 
Secondly, so remember, in order to gain perspective, David could remember those times when God was at work. But secondly, persecution serves to remind us of the truth of sin, not of abandonment. Do you get that? Persecution reminds us of the truth of sin, not of abandonment. 1 Peter 5, 9, such a great reminder to the church. Peter's talking to a persecuted church. He says, be firm in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. Peter's saying sin in the world actually demonstrates that what God says is true. Not that God has abandoned us. You're not alone. Pastor Dane Ortland had a great quote. He says, God loves us too much to leave us shallow. He goes on to say, God may bring, and this is hard, he may bring all of what we consider bad in the world against us, if only to help us to detach from it. Insecurity, war, poverty, pain, unpopularity, loneliness. We must be taught that this tent is not our home. And that's a hard message in a country that pursues pleasure at such great rates, that holds pleasure in esteem. To be told that th bad things might be brought on us to teach us that this isn't our home. This isn't, we're in, we're in, and he uses the word tent. Peter uses that word tent. Tents fold up. Tents are temporary. That's, that's what we are. Adversity in this world is inevitable, but how we handle it is optional. When adversity arises because of sinful actions, we must not allow our thoughts to run away into fear and despair. Remember, to gain perspective, persecution is not abandonment. So where does David go? Where do we land? David's last admonishment is where power fails and where it also succeeds. Where does it fail? Do not trust in extortion or put faint, vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, it's just a point of emphasis David is saying. He's saying, listen to this. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they've done. How and where power betrays. First, he's saying power betrays through accumulation of wealth and self-sufficiency, right? Power, money, sex, and power are probably the three biggest areas of abuse by humans. We talk a lot more about sex and money than we do about power. I think we need a theology of power. So I want to take the last closing comments here to just talk a little bit about what the Bible determines power to be. I used a book to help, the, help me with this. It's a, a book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. If you're looking for a, a great summer read, I highly, highly recommend this book. But this book, tell me if this is what you think of when you think of power. This is how he defines it. The ability to create and shape something to take raw materials and bring meaning and purpose to that creation. Power is given for the flourishing of human beings. Now, many of us, when we think of power, we think of movies where power is, is flexed, or we think of political regimes, but originally power is and was a gift. It's a gift. The Bible instructs that God is the only one to be able to create from nothing, so we hold him as all-powerful. 
But then God in his goodness set out in, in chapter one, right out in Genesis chapter one, he says, let us create man in our image. So then what God does is he bestows power onto his creation. He surrounds mankind with all kinds of raw materials to take and shape. He gives mankind intellect to be able to build and renew things and to, and to create. He creates and shapes environments, makes room for variety, diversity, unpredictability. So if power is shared, if power is for flourishing for each other by a God who shares with us, if power is for that unique ability as image bearers of God to make meaning and purpose in our lives, then powerlessness is being cut off from that. As I've been writing this sermon, it's kind of ironic, I actually had some of my identity stolen. <laughs> and so my social security number was compromised and people are trying to hack my unemployment benefits. And identity theft is pretty common now. It impacts 40 million people a year. I don't know if you knew that. It's to the tune of 50 plus billion dollars is what it costs. But, but it's a great illustration, identity theft, someone removing your ability to make financial choices, somebody abusing that which you worked hard for, somebody misrepresenting you and your decisions, well, power hoarded, power manipulated becomes injustice. That is injustice. The Bible attacks idolatry and injustice in, in almost the same ways. It's really fascinating. Why? Because idolatry is trying to make something an object our God. Injustice is trying to play God over somebody else, to take away their power, removing their ability to create, removing their ability to make sense of the world, marginalizing, removing them from being able to freely innovate. And we see this everywhere, but let me just give you an illustration where I think we see it most astutely, and that's in um, removing education or restricting education from people. If you want to talk to Andy Bonner about his heart for Haiti or talk to Mike Van Tempo about their hearts for Haiti, yes, it's about gospel teaching, but it's also about educating people on health, on, on their bodies, on taking care of them. Why? Because so many of them don't have access to education. Other common ways we see power hoarded or taken away is by excluding people by their skin color, their gender, or their dialect. Human trafficking is an egregious sin and crime because it takes advantage of those who even within their own context have basic rights, but because maybe they lack education, they don't even know their rights. And then they're manipulated by other people. The Ten Commandments, the first few commandments are to keep us in check with God and to know where true power comes from. All the other commandments are to restrain power with each other and to make sure we don't try to become gods over other people. David understood there's this temptation to manipulate power rather than steward it. And he says, one thing God has spoken, two things I've heard, power belongs to you. David understands to break potential cycles of retribution using power. It has to be entrusted to God or else it becomes poison. Amos is a prophet speaking to Isaiah uh, or speaking to the, the, the nation of Israel because they are doing just this. They're taking advantage of the poor and the needy. And Amos says, you've turned justice into poison. The inappropriate use of power, justice can quickly devolve into poison. And David learned some hard lessons about power for sure. As we know, he took a wife that wasn't his. He took a census that he should have never done that cost the lives of many people. But ultimately, David learned this hard lesson that power belongs to God. 
the last sentence, with you is unfailing love. You reward everyone according to what they've done. And you might be thinking at this point, so what do we do, Brandon? We just sit around and let injustices play out and trust that God will deal with it in his time? No. In fact, listen to this. This is a quote I came across from C.S. Lewis. If you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought the most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. We shall never save civilization as long as civilization is our main object. We must learn to want something more. Lewis says, in order to love each other here, in order to redeem power here and now, we have to have heaven on our mind. We have to learn to want something more and something better than what this world offers. He's saying the church, when it was most influential and most successful, is when it served power, didn't hoard it. Examples, successful serving of power in the church, hospitals, charities, foster care, eventual conversion of Rome, abol uh, abol abolishment of slavery. It didn't come in the violent overthrow of governments, but in serving each other radically. Where did the church fail? Sexual abuse, holy wars, also slavery. The church can fall prey to the manipulation of power just as anyone can if we take our eyes off of heaven and lose sight of Jesus in the process. Jesus came to show that true power is in the service of it. Jesus taught that we are to do on earth as it is in heaven. That heaven is gonna look a lot more like giving to others than taking from others. Let me give you just a, a quick illustration I was, of how power can serve. I went into Dunkin' Donuts a, a week or so ago and there was an older man and a younger woman, different ethnicities, different ages, different genders. And he was teaching her how to do some things. He was showing her some shortcuts. And she was laughing and she said, thank you, that's really great, that's helpful. She shared some information with him. All it was, folks, is a simple exchange between these different demographics of exchanging power back and forth to flourish each other, to help each other. And maybe that's a simple or oversimple illustration, but that's a picture of what we're supposed to do with power. That's how we serve each other. And fundamentally, this is where so much of our culture, I think, right now is falling apart. We have no ability to speak into each other's lives. We've put these walls up. Where am I helping power flourish? Where am I taking power away? Where am I withholding that from another person? In your workplace, do you withhold information? Are you not giving credit where credit's due? Are you withholding an opportunity for someone to move ahead or advance? In the church, we all have gifts. Are you sharing them willingly? Or are you neglecting it because it's an inconvenience? Man, if you missed the beauty of this video, obvious illustration, Adults coming together to, with power to serve the powerless, little children, right? Security guards standing guard outside to make sure kids were protected and that they could learn about the source of their power and their strength in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the model of love transfiguring our understanding of power. Jesus served the will of the Father to the point of death. And the great calling to us is first and foremost, we have to have our hearts reshaped by Jesus before we can even really understand how to use our power. But secondly, once that happens, the church is called to move outwards, to bring justice outwards. I put this slide up just to show you some examples of ways that the church is doing just this. Malta Ministries and in your community here, serving those who are threatened by homelessness. IGM, uh, International Justice Mission, a great organization trying to, trying to help people that are stuck in human trafficking situations. Voice of the Martyrs helping the persecuted church around the world. Legacy House, Hope House, helping at-risk women in our community to be safe, to break addictions. There's so many ways to get involved. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. You reward everyone according to what they have done. So I want to close with this. Power in God's economy. The strong willingly become weak so that power is not consumed but given to each other. At the heart, power is sacrificial love. Philippians 2, 6 through 7 One of my favorite verses, Jesus, who being very in nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, willingly giving up his power. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. David's song reminds us that we are known by God. He sees us. He came near. He stays near. We can deal with anxiety coming from a a feeling of loss of control. We can deal with hurtful words, false accusations, injustices around us when we understand who is ultimately in control and what he says about who we are. Our response to injustice is our responsibility. We engage the world like Jesus, not by fighting for power and control, but by asking, how can I redeem power in this broken situation to bring about transformation, to open up new lines of communication, to forgive where there needs to be forgiveness, to repent where I need to repent. This world is not our final destination. We live with heaven on the mind. How might God be using us to serve in a way that shares my power with another person within my community or or an organization? If I had to summarize this morning, it's this line, power is the gift of a lover not a weapon for man. We're going to sing a closing song. Psalm 62 reminds us, God is our refuge and our firm foundation. He meets us in our deepest place of need at the cross. Your sin became his sin. Your failure became his failure. Because of that, he can't and he won't let you down because it's done. He's yours and you are his forever. Will you stand and sing this, please?
close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are our firm foundation, that you meet us in the deepest place of need at the cross, that your sin became our sin, your failure became our failure. Lord, thank you that you never gave up on us. You loved us to the end. Lord, may that motivate and energize us this week as we go into our workplaces to think about how we can in turn share power because of what you gave up for us. We thank you, God. Give you all the glory, praise, and honor. In your precious name we pray, amen.